Will you pray with me? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Foolish? I suppose that's what you could call um, some of the choices I made when I was traveling in Chicago. We had been living in Kentucky at the time, and I flew to Chicago for some meetings, and I was supposed to meet some friends at Midway Airport, and somehow we missed our connection, and I was left there alone trying to figure out how I was going to get to where I needed to get to, and I thought, well, I will just try to manage the public transportation system, and so I was trying to figure out how to do that, and... As I was doing it, I was approached by a woman, middle-aged woman. She asked me where I was going, and I, I told her, and she graciously tried to help me figure it out, how, which, which subway I would take, and then which, which bus, and what I needed to do to get where I needed to go. And then she offered to give me a ride, right to the door of the place where I was going. Tempting. Very tempting. But I knew, I knew that it would be foolish to accept a ride from a perfect stranger in this big city that I didn't know. Thanks, but no thanks. Well, she accepted my refusal very graciously. She clearly understood my reticence. And as we walked together to leave the airport, she gently explained that she was on her way to visit her son. In fact, she was carrying with her homemade jam to take to him. And my heart started to soften. The clincher came when she explained her motivation for doing this, for offering me a ride. She told me about experience that she'd had recently when she was traveling in Japan, and she ended up in a very similar kind of situation halfway lost, didn't know where she was going, didn't know how to get where she was, wanted to go, and somebody so graciously and, and kindly took her under their wing and got her to where she needed to go. And she was just determined to pass on this kindness to someone else. I paused. I thought about Doug, and I thought about our two young children back at home, and I thought about all that I and they stood to lose if this thing went bad. And I said, okay. And true to her word, she delivered me right to the door of where I needed to go. And looking back, I don't think that I would have ever found it on my own. In many ways, I made a foolish choice that day. A choice that really defied all conventional wisdom. And I recognize that the story could have had a very different ending. But it didn't. Instead, what I experienced through that foolish decision was God's provision for me through this woman in my time of need to protect and to care for me. But we're not really here this morning to talk or to ponder that foolish decision or perhaps others that I have made that you may see me make or perhaps foolish decisions that you yourself have made. 
This morning, I'd like us to think together about the foolish decisions that God has made. Now, when we look at the text from Exodus 20, the so-called Ten Commandments, it's really hard to see any foolishness there. In many ways, those words spoken by God to the people of Israel exemplify wisdom. Although our changing culture seems to have less and less respect for rules imposed by an external authority, in fact, even doubts the legitimacy of external authority, I think that most of us here understand the wisdom of boundaries that guide us into a way of life that is healthy and whole and that helps us to live out our love for God and for each other and for ourselves. Perhaps the biggest foolishness about them is that in binding ourselves to these ways, we find freedom. And there's a paradox here. Firmly bound, forever free. And that's a topic for another sermon. As we move to the New Testament this morning, God's foolish decisions come a little more clearly into focus. And I want us to look at the account in John 2 first that Lori read. This story of Jesus wreaking havoc in the temple, they oftentimes call it cleansing the temple, it was more like wreaking havoc in the temple. It appears in all four of the Gospels, but there are some significant differences in John's Gospel and the way that he tells the story. For starters, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, this episode occurs clear at the end of Jesus' ministry in the last week of his life. But in John, the story takes place right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right after he changes all that water into wine at that wedding in Cana. Perhaps this is John's way of introducing who Jesus is and all that is to come. Jesus will be about revealing God's glory as he did at that wedding in Cana. But he will also be about revealing God's challenge, as he does so graphically in the temple. And what exactly is this challenge that Jesus is revealing? Well, here we encounter another difference in John's account. In the other gospel, Jesus seems clearly, very clearly, to be speaking out about the corruption and the injustice that has taken over the life of the temple. He declares... This was meant to be a house of prayer, and you have made it into a den of robbers. But John's emphasis is different. In John's account, Jesus simply says, Stop making my father's house into a marketplace. Never mind that the marketplace is what made worship at the temple possible. Now, people would travel long distances to get to the temple to offer sacrifices, to worship, to make their offerings. They couldn't risk transporting their animals for sacrifice all that way. They might get injured along the way, and then they would be unfit to offer as a sacrifice. 
So the temple offered a very nice service. They had animals available for sacrifice there at the temple, and they also had a money-changing service because Roman coinage was not acceptable in the temple for religious reasons. So this marketplace, the temple, is legitimate business. It's in the service of worship. But it isn't acceptable to Jesus. And according to John, it doesn't seem that it's primarily corruption that Jesus is objecting to. Jesus, in John anyhow, seems to be challenging the whole system of temple worship. Boy. What a way to begin one's ministry. I'm going to tell you, conventional wisdom for new pastors is that you don't mess with things, not for the first year. <laughs> you let things be. And here Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry, taking on the whole system. Foolish? And his way of doing it isn't pretty. He makes a whip out of cords. He drives all those animals out, and we're talking big animals, cattle and sheep. And he takes the coins, he pours the coins out of the money changers, and he overturns their tables. His re disciples remember it as um, a display of zeal. And we as pacifists kind of wonder, what do we do with this passage? And in so doing... Jesus throws the mechanics of the temple worship into chaos, to total chaos. He disrupts the temple system during one of the most significant feasts of the year. This was Passover. The temple was mobbed by people so that neither sacrifices nor tithes could be offered on that day. Foolish. Let me tell you, no matter what the timing, whether it's the beginning of his ministry or the end of his ministry, that kind of action can get you killed. And ultimately, it does. Throughout Jesus' ministry, his teaching, his healing, his welcome of outcasts, his direct challenge through his words and his actions of the powers that be create a momentum that proves to be a threat to the Roman government and to his own religious establishment. And in the end, these two bases of power collude and sentence him to death and execute him as a criminal. Now, if you're trying to save your life, this course of action is definitely foolish. Jesus' own disciples definitely thought so. What a waste of such potential. I mean, they were at the, on the cusp of something really big, and if only Jesus had played his cards differently. I mean, what ended up happening certainly could not have been a part of God's plan. I mean, after all, wasn't Jesus supposed to be the Messiah, God's chosen one meant to change the world? But how could a crucified Messiah change anything? A crucified Messiah, that's an oxymoron. You can't hardly even say those two words in the same sentence. Talk about foolish. 
So much about Jesus flew in the face of conventional wisdom then. It's a little hard for us to really handle that. But the truth is, so much about Jesus also flies in the face of conventional wisdom now. Some of his words run so counter to the fundamental values of North American culture, our North American world in which we live. Things like, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. Now I know, to those of us who grew up in uh, pacifist faith traditions, these words are probably so familiar we don't even give them a second thought, right? But last year, I think it was last year, I caught a glimpse of how offensive these words can sound to others. I was accosted in a parking lot by a man who was deeply offended by my bumper sticker, bumper sticker on my car. I only have one, and it says, God bless the world, no exceptions. Probably some of you have that on your cars, too. But this man was livid, and I mean livid. He told me under no, under no certain terms that God does not bless the whole world, certainly not terrorists, and to have this bumper sticker on my car was to misrepresent God, and that is blasphemy. And he said a few more things as well. It was actually a perfect opportunity to bless someone who was cursing me. And I found out that it wasn't all that easy. I went home pretty shaken. Now, these are not the only words of Jesus that potentially create dissonance for us and perhaps appear foolish. I mean, what are we supposed to do with this one? The last will be first, and the first will be last, and whoever is the least among you will be the greatest. Now, really, tell me, how many of our places of work, or how many of our corporate institutions, even our Mennonite ones, how many of them shape their organizational practices around these principles? Here's another one. Those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their sake, life for my sake will save it. You know, that's funny, because I thought that self-preservation was the name of the game. And here's one that I think particularly hits close to home. At least it does for me. Don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth. And it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Well, according to the wisdom of our world, that kind of thinking is just plain foolishness. Of course, it's not just what Jesus said, it's also what he did. He showed seeming disregard for the laws of his faith tradition. I mean, he offered forgiveness. And that was blasphemy because only God can offer forgiveness. And he healed on the Sabbath and he touched unclean people like lepers. And he let unclean people like women touch him. And he went so far as to allow one of them to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them off with her hair. And another one, he allowed to anoint his body with expensive perfume that could have been used to feed a lot of poor people. He also hung around with all the wrong people. 
wrong as defined by his culture. People like prostitutes and tax collectors. And he ate with them. And he fellowshiped with them. And he asked them to follow him. And when it became clear that the path he had chosen was leading to trouble, and I mean big trouble, he didn't let up. He opted not to quietly slip away and to fade into anonymity. He remained faithful to his call until the end. Foolish? Or just plain crazy? Well, one or the other. I mean, that's how it looked to those who were with Jesus and watched this drama unfold. They just didn't get it. And foolish, really, is how this all seemed to the early church. A crucified Messiah? Really? We see the Apostle Paul addressing this issue in his letter to the faith community in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 25. Yes, he tells them, the message about the cross, the message of a crucified Messiah is foolishness to those who are perishing. God's choice about how to respond to the sin and the evil and the violence, to, to the brokenness of our world, certainly appears foolish. In the face of a wayward world bent on turning its back on God, bent on pursuing paths of destruction, God chooses to love. God chooses to love the enemy. God chooses to reach out in love, in costly, self-giving, self-sacrificing love in order to break the power of evil, to mend all that has been broken, to reconcile all people everywhere and all creation to God, and to provide a way that leads to abundant life. To all of us who are being saved, Paul says, this is the power and the wisdom of God. You see, in the end, in Christ, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And so now as we reflect on our covenant with God during this Lenten season, we are invited, in fact, not just invited, we are challenged to embrace God's foolishness. In many ways, it is foolishness. It's a foolishness that makes no sense at all to the world in which we live. Yet it is the way through which God chooses to change the world. And we are invited to be part of it. Now, embracing foolishness is not without risk. Do you remember Chuck Newfeld when he was here? Embracing God's foolishness may look like Chuck Newfeld moving into a middle of a fight in his front yard, walking right into it and declaring, Stop! 
This is sanctified ground. There will be no violence here. He could have gotten killed. Perhaps more commonly, as we seek to live out God's foolishness, um, we are misunderstood, labeled naive, idealistic, crazy, downright foolish. And sometimes living into God's foolishness Foolishness means leaving behind security, maybe leaving behind a job or home or a place of belonging as we follow Jesus into uncharted and unfamiliar territory because we know that is where we are being led. Many times as we are living into God's foolishness, it can feel like swimming upstream against a current that is much stronger than we are. The fact of the matter is, we can't sustain a long swim upstream against a strong current alone. We need God. We need each other. And that is precisely why we gather for worship each Sunday, week after week. Sure. We enjoy the music. Sure, we enjoy connecting with friends. But more profoundly, it is a time when we meet God together. We praise God together. We we cry out to God together. We ask God for help and for strength. And in the process, we are encouraged, challenged, and sometimes disturbed We're reoriented to the ways of God's foolishness, and we are strengthened for that journey. We recognize that we may be swimming upstream, but we are not alone. May this time of worship today help us remember all this and even more, that we are together here as a people who have been embraced by the foolishness of God's love. Not because of anything we've ever done, not because we particularly deserve it, but because God has chosen to respond to the brokenness of this world with love. Foolish? According to conventional wisdom, surely. But as we enter into that love, and as we find our center there, we soon discover that in that foolishness, there is wisdom deeper than human wisdom. And in the weakness of a crucified Messiah, there is power. There is power beyond human strength. This is the foolishness that we are invited into. May we join in with abandon, ready to be fools for and with God.